0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Scheib.
0: And I'm Tracy McCrae.
1: Choosing long-term care for an aging family member or for yourself can be challenging and stressful. There are a lot of things to consider.
2: There's a lot of different ways we can approach it. Most communities have a nursing home, which is what everybody thinks about when they talk about long-term care. For most people in today's world, we're talking about assisted living or senior housing. Both of those two arenas have a little bit different levels of intensity.
3: Planning for long-term care takes time and careful thought. Mayo Clinic geriatric specialist Dr. Paul Takahashi joins us with advice on how to make these important choices.
1: Also on the program, the wonders of parasites. We'll hear from a doctor who blogs about them.
3: And the avatar mouse joins the fight against human cancer.
1: All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Scheib. And I'm Tracy McRae. You know, it's never an easy decision, whether for yourself or an aging loved one, and that's deciding when to move into a long-term care facility or assisted living or a nursing home. Rarely easy. Uh, and it usually means giving up some of the independence that you've had for most of your adult life. In fact, it's probably almost as difficult as giving up your driver's
3: license. Oh, boy. Well, sometimes choosing long-term care may the, may be the best move when you have chronic health problems or you're just having a harder time getting around. Here to talk about factors to consider when weighing long-term care is Mayo Clinic Internal Medicine and Geriatric Specialist, Dr. Paul Y. Takahashi. Welcome to the program, Dr.
2: Takahashi. Hi, Tracy. Hi, Tom. How are you guys doing Good. today? Nice uh, to see you.
1: Fine. Nice to see you. You know, you always want to remain friends with a geriatrician because sooner or <laughs> later you hope you'll need them. Yes,
2: Absolutely.
3: that's right. One, one of the you. doctors I'm not seeing on a regular basis, but will be someday.
1: Thanks, so I want a little advice yeah. about uh, when and where to go when you need some assistance and you become a senior citizen and tell us first what are some of the the reasons the usual health problems that would require that uh, an individual think about going somewhere where they can absolutely get
2: tom i think this is a really important topic as our population is getting older and it's people i'm taking care of are getting older this is frequently coming up and they ask they asked me say paul What are really the issues? And so one of them that really comes up pretty frequently is if there starts to become problems with memory. Memory still is probably one of the number one reasons why people start having challenges staying at home. We take a lot of things for granted, the ability to cook your meals, pay your bills, get up and get around. But if you start having some memory problems, that becomes more and more challenging. Um, If you have a spouse or you have a, a caregiver who can help provide some support with that, Oftentimes people try to do that, and try to stay within their home. That's always what people want. They always want to stay at home, and I don't blame them. I, I like to stay at home too. Um, but as we, people start having some problem with memory, that becomes a challenge. Second on that list, of course, if people become more frail, they have problems getting around, getting out of bed, uh, going, you know, going to the bathroom. Those continue to be issues as well, and that's when we start having those discussions about, well, Maybe the time is now to start thinking about going to a little bit of a more intensive environment to get some help and some support.
1: So the the two main ones would be dementia, uh, memory problems, mm-hmm. and and weak frailty.
2: Weakness, frailty, and falls, and those types of issues that come up. So you just can't maintain. You can't get up the stairs. Can't get off the toilet. So that's a big issue.
1: What, let's go back
3: to memory because uh, uh, today I couldn't find my car keys. You know, so exactly what do you mean by memory? Do you mean that you listen can't, closely? Right. Yeah. I. This is why I want to get it down. <laughs> yes. You don't remember where your medicine is. You forget to take your medicine, or that's forget correct, to feed Tracy. yourself.
2: So when you lose your ca- your keys, what You do. You start. You come up with a plan. You say, "What I'm going to do? I'm going to start on this floor. I'm going to keep going up or down to figure out where I Mm parked. When we have people with significant memory loss, they don't recognize what to do. There's no problem solving that goes into that. The other issues are if you do start forgetting your your medications, or what really worries me the most is when people stop forgetting to eat. Uh, When people start losing weight, that's a very, very serious health problem. Because if people get weak, they start to fall, break bones, really a bad challenge. So that's when I usually talk with people and say, you know, we'll try to even – even people who have known dementia and we know they have a problem with their memory, we try to keep them at home as long as we can with support, help, nursing, Mm -hmm. family – Uh, But when they can't do that, that's when we start thinking, maybe we need to look at a different environment.
1: And and what are the options? There there are different levels of of care, and so how do you decide what you need and and what's available?
2: Well, Tom, there's a lot of different ways we can approach it, depending upon where you're at, what community you live in. uh, There may be most communities have a nursing home, which is what everybody thinks about when they talk about long-term care. And that's where you have nursing 24 hours a day. They may have physical therapy there. Uh, for most people in today's world, we're talking about assisted living or senior housing. Those, both of those two uh, arenas have a little bit different levels of intensity. In assisted living, you may have someone help to provide some support for you, but they don't necessarily have nursing 24 hours a day. In senior housing, you may have your own apartment, and everything's kind of handicap accessible. But you really don't have anybody coming in every day making sure you're getting your medications or getting your meals. Sometimes a meal or two will be provided every day, Mm -hmm. but that's not necessarily the case. Or it can be a la carte. You just pay for what you need as you go. And, of course, the cost issues are very different with that depending upon how much support you need.
1: So would you say that senior housing and assisted living are basically the same thing? Uh, and little, then the next step up would be nursing home.
2: Exactly. And they're very similar. And again, in different areas, it could, it could vary a lot in terms of what is senior housing. Some places have a lot of support. Some places, basically, just an apartment that a lot of older people live in.
3: Back in the day, however long ago that was, five years ago or 25 years ago, you know, you were either at home or you're in the nursing home. And now that you have all these steps in between, of you could go to assisted living, you can start out in senior, senior housing, I would think that might make make it a little bit more enticing for people to say, yes, I'm ready to leave my home. Right. You said usually people want to stay at home, but kind of stepping your way into it with senior housing seems to be a good option.
2: It is a very good option for a lot of people. Because I think at that point, a lot of people make their own choice with that. And they say, I, I can't really maintain the house that I had when I brought up my children. It's big. It's got four bedrooms. I really don't need that. I just need an apartment that may have one or two bedrooms, be around other people with some socialization potentially a meal or two. And that's what they really want to do. And some people can live in that environment for years and do. They can live in that for three, five, seven years and be very happy with it. And then they gradually kind of go, well, maybe there's a memory issue and I'm going to start to get some 24-hour supervision, someone there to help provide support and care for me as I need to do
1: that. So you've made that decision that you're probably going to leave your home, uh, go someplace else where you can get a little bit of help. But the next problem is how you choose a facility are there any guides or guidelines out there that will help people do that
2: absolutely so i still believe the general gestalt method works pretty well for most people visit the place you want to live Um, nobody or very few people buy their house without literally looking at it you Mm -hmm. go through the house you take a look at it you see do you like how it's set up where it's at what location it's at Um, You look at the facilities, what kind of offerings they have, and you think about what you may need in the future. If there's some memory loss or dementia, uh, people may get worse with time and you may need more help and care. So you really try to avoid a double move. You try to go to one place if you can and staying there long-term. Um, are there, uh, you know, does the federal government, uh, you know, kind of watch these things? They do, and CMS.gov compare. You can actually look at nursing homes in particular. You can see how they're rated. Mm. Um, all the nursing homes in the United States are evaluated by the survey process and by quality measures that the nursing homes have to report um, c- continuously, and you can see where the nursing homes kind of stack up. And so it's a very easy thing to look at and to do, but I still believe – just going in, taking a look, talking to people, talking to friends, gives you a much better view where where you want to go.
1: Sorry, what was the website again?
2: Uh, CMS. Gov. So you go, C- So, C- so C- it's C- the C- Medicare C- um, website. If you look at Nursing Home Compare, if you put that into a, a search engine, that would be another way to quickly get the the government site that'll tell you how does all how do all the nursing homes in Olmsted County, Minnesota, compare to each other.
3: Sure. You mentioned um, memory care and dementia. Um, and memory care being one of the main, also big growth parts of this, because as we as we live longer, there's more opportunity for need of memory care. Can memory care be built into all three of those, or is that mostly just at nursing homes?
2: Um, it can be built into assisted living and into nursing home in particular. Sure. So memory care is a pretty common scenario. Senior housing, potentially, depending upon what level you're at with sure. your dementia, uh, some people can live in senior housing, just get some... Setting up their medications or getting their meals taken care of. But as people get pretty severe and they forget things, it's it, oftentimes mm-hmm. they'll go to assisted
1: living. We're talking about choosing long-term care and other issues related to aging with Mayo Clinic Internal Medicine Specialist Dr. Paul Takahashi. He's also known as a geriatrician. When we come back, we'll talk about how the children can make the transition easier for their parents. Also about physical and mental abuse in the nursing home or assisted living facility. Specialized units like memory care and. We'll ask you about the cost. How do most people handle that?
3: (laughs) You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. The 12 Habits of Highly Healthy People are activities you can incorporate into your daily life to achieve a healthier, happier you. Developed by the staff of Mayo Clinic's Dan Abraham Healthy Living Center, the 12 Habits include a spectrum of activities that contribute to physical, nutritional, mental, and spiritual health. Here to talk about habit number two, forgiveness, is Mayo Clinic Stress Management Specialist, Dr. Amit Sood.
4: We can't take forgiveness lightly because sometimes people have been hurt significantly and forgiveness is very difficult for those people. But for the minor odds and ends understanding forgiveness helps so forgiveness is not justifying condoning excusing or denying forgiveness is a choice you choose to have a different higher form of living you disempower the other person from continuing to hurt you so forgiveness is for you it frees you up from the toxicity of the other person
3: stress management specialist dr amit sood talking about forgiveness forgiveness is habit number two in the 12 habits of highly healthy people we'll really be featuring more habits in upcoming programs here on mayo clinic Radio.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm
3: Tracy McRae.
1: We are with geriatric specialist Dr. Paul Y. Takahashi talking about nursing homes and other assisted care facilities. So, Dr. Takahashi, you've told us how we might go about evaluating a facility before uh, us or our, our parents uh, would go there. But how can the children, the kids in the family, make the transition easier for their parents to whatever facility they're going to?
2: I think it's going to be important to be very supportive of your parents. Um, And I think that it has to be kind of a group effort. And and we also have to understand a lot of times people are different places with where they're at with making that decision to go to long-term care or go to assisted living. Uh, Sometimes the children are much more pushing for this and saying, I'm really worried about you, Mom. I really think you need to go. And Mom may not quite be there yet. It's important to be supportive and try to make sure that everybody's understanding of each other. Uh, make sure that also they can do some of the leg work and try to look into some of this and say, well, I've talked to people and this is kind of what we've seen. Oftentimes for a lot of our older adults, they may not be driving. Uh, they may have some challenges getting to these places. Um, it'll be, it, it can be difficult.
1: Do most older individuals and patients in your practice take your advice or take the kids' advice or is it sometimes mm-hmm. pretty difficult to, to get um, them to leave their home?
2: It's, it's an individual decision, Tom. I'll be honest. Most people take their time of making that decision. That's why, for me, I talk with you pretty much up front that a lot, you know we just have to assume at some time in your lifetime you may need to go to an assisted living, uh, or me, and me too. And for most of us, because we're going to continue to live longer, live better. But at some point, we, we will become frail, and yep. we may and need that where, help.
1: I'm going where you go. Okay. That's, that
2: might, <laughs> Thank you.
1: I won't even have to choose.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, following his footsteps, that sounds very good. We hear on, on, the, on the news occasionally, I was going to say every day, but you'll hear a terrible story about someone um, who, with, whether it's bed sores or there was some sort of abuse, when you start to lose your memory and the ability to advocate for yourself, that's when these um, terrible stories will pop
2: up. Mm-hmm. They do, and they are—they're very sad. And we—and I think that everybody, in all environments, try to avoid those as much we, as we can. And that could be in all environments, particularly you know long-term mm-hmm. care, of the nursing home, because these people are very frail. They are very sick, and they do have issues with their memory oftentimes. Mm-hmm. And so, um, what I would at, tell people to do is to continue—if you're a, a caregiver or a family member—continue to visit, continue to be aware of where people are at um, and how they're doing. I think it's also incumbent upon all of our uh, facilities, nursing homes, hospitals, assisted livings, to make sure we provide the best care possible. And how do we do that? We're vigilant with nutrition. I think that's a really big part of this. If mm. people start to lose weight, they're at much higher risk for having bed sores. Uh, continue to keep an eye on the, the skin care. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of really hardworking people. I know in the state of Minnesota, that's the big issue uh, this year is how are we going to continue to support the nursing home environment because it's, it is a, uh, an environment with our sickest and most frail and most vulnerable people. That's where they live.
1: If you thought that your parent or loved one was being physically or mentally abused, what might help you spot that?
2: Um, if you're noticing that people are starting to become more withdrawn, you know, they're not talking to you, they just don't seem very happy. If you start noticing issues like, you know, the cares just aren't where they should be, that's what I would be really, really concerning. If you have concerns about that, one really good resource is talking to the ombudsman. That's basically it's an, a senior advocate for your your, your parent. They can look into it a little bit further. So if you're not a nursing home expert, and most people really are not, get some help. Become, have some advocates on your side or your, your parent's side or loved one's side and have them go and take a look into this and investigate it a little bit. You certainly can also contact your state that you live in. That would also be another option.
1: Where do you find this ombudsman?
2: Usually, I would um, I would I would search it on the um, on the internet. I look at ombudsman for the state of Minnesota or whichever state you live in. Mm-hmm. Almost all states do have a, a senior advocate. If you're ever not sure, each state and each county has an area agency on aging, and there's always a, a, at least someone to talk to there and, and express your concern and say. I'm a little bit worried about where my mom's at and what's going on there. And they will at least be able to help you to say, this is the right person to talk to. It may be a county social worker. There may be some other things that they could, they could provide for you.
3: I am trying to figure out how to pay for braces in camp. But, uh, <laughs> college is a little bit in the, in, out in the future, but paying for assisted living or nursing care is something that I can't even conceive of right now, but that is a huge part of this conversation.
2: Absolutely. And that's going to be, continue to be a bigger and bigger one because these are not cheap at all. So we think about the cost of college and you think, well, that's going to be roughly, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand or so, give or take. Um, Talking about a nursing home stay, it's usually about $80,000 a year. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, – and you recognize that most people don't have much more than about 50000 in savings. This is incredibly expensive. Um, assisted living may run about $4,000 plus or minus a little bit. And then if you have Four, any – 4000 a month? 4000 a month. So about half the cost. But then you have to add in sure. the a la carte care. The problem is a lot, there really are no good funding mechanisms. We think about, oh, Medicare is going to take care of that. Well, if you're in for a very short period of time and after a hospitalization or a surgery, they'll pick up some of that. But after about three months, they will not pick up any at all. So it's on you to pay for that. Well, what do most
3: people do? I was going to say long-term care.
2: Long-term care. So <laughs> what generally happens is people, uh, you, you get your first day and say you're going sure. to a nursing home. Right. The Medicare will pick up the first Partially pick up the first hundred days, and then after that, you're paying for it. And then that's where I would certainly talk to, uh, again, advocates, the senior, the agency of aging, and say, particularly if you have a spouse, because they're gonna, There's how much can you leave behind in those types of issues? And then oftentimes people end up going on uh, uh, public assistance, mm-hmm. and that's the reality. Of probably mm-hmm. about uh, 40% of people in long-term care uh, get some assistance from the state.
1: What do you think about long-term care insurance? For the older individuals, I
2: think it's a it's a it has theoretically been a great option. They we have tried and people the government tried doing it with the Affordable Care Act that didn't go through. Uh, they have the companies have tried doing it and it hasn't gone through as well. A lot of it's because these are, this is an insurance question. People are living longer, um, they're living better, and what we used to think well people would stay in the nursing home for about maybe two years plus or minus. Now it's becoming three years or three and a half years. So is that
1: the average day?
2: the average day, average so average life expectancy in long term in a nursing home is about three years now, Tom. Wow. So, that, so that's uh, two hundred and forty thousand yeah. dollars. So they didn't. So the, the all the big insurance companies didn't plan for that, and they thought it was going to be two years. And the numbers just don't work well. they're, they're expensive when you want to buy it. So when you're young and you, you can actually afford it. You may not need it, and when you're old enough, you may actually think about it. It's so expensive, people can't afford it. They can't afford the insurance. Yeah, that's the problem.
3: Wow. So I got to be getting. I'm supposed to be getting this now when I'm in my 40s. That is actually something that I read. If you want to get long-term care insurance,
2: Tracy, that's about right. You really have to be in your 40s (laughs) and think about. Well, why am I going to have to spend 30 plus years of not inexpensive Mm -hmm. insurance to do that? And you're thinking, well. And I think a lot of people I talk to, they think, well, I'm just gonna let things happen as they happen. (laughs) I mean, just to be honest, that's what they do. Right.
1: Dr. Takahashi, you've taught us a lot about long-term care. We greatly appreciate it. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Tom. Dr. Paul Takahashi specializes in gerontology and internal medicine at Mayo Clinic.
3: Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, one doctor's blog that celebrates the wonders of parasites (laughs) and mouse avatars join the fight against human cancer.
1: Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
0: Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with the Mayo Clinic News Network headline. We sit around way too much. Our bodies are meant to move, so start walking. A new study in the Journal of the American Society of Nephrology found if you get up out of your chair and casually walk around for two minutes every hour, you might just live longer.
1: Walking is very important because there have been quite a number of studies now in the literature that show that people who sit for prolonged periods of time have increased risks of heart disease, they have increased risks of obesity, increased risks of diabetes, uh, and perhaps even increased risks of cancer.
0: Dr. Thompson says to try to fit in at least 15 minutes of walking throughout the day, how? Get up and go talk to colleagues in person instead of communicating by text or email. Email. take stairs not an elevator use a printer that's away from your desk and walk while on the okay. phone
1: because we're not moving as much at work as we used to that uh, we are gaining about six pounds
0: every year and that's a lot so get up and get moving to better health you might have a treadmill at home and they're certainly a common piece of sports equipment at the gym they're great for exercise but accidents do happen According to Mayo Clinic Sports Medicine Specialist Dr. Jacob Sellin, some of the treadmill-related injuries he sees are sprains, strains, and abrasions. But injuries such as head, spine, or limb trauma can be serious issues. Here are some tips on how to stay safe. Keep children away during use. Make sure there's six to seven feet of space behind the treadmill. Know where the emergency stop button is. where the safety key so it shuts off if you fall. Keep your eyes focused forward and let the belt stop completely before you step off. All ways to stay safe while getting exercise on a treadmill. Itchy, burny, dry eyes. For many women, those are common and annoying symptoms, especially after menopause. It's called postmenopausal dry eye syndrome. Here's Mayo Clinic ophthalmologist Dr. Raymond Ayazi.
2: So as women lose estrogen naturally in the course of their aging, um, the the production of tears, the type of tears that moisten the eye and keep the eye comfortable, that tear film production actually can reduce over time.
0: In addition to the discomfort, your vision can get blurry. Once diagnosed, you can get on the right treatment, special eye drops, and in some cases, other procedures. Dr. Ayazi says the key to good eye health for women is good overall health.
2: Ideally, they would they would seek routine medical care periodically through their life and certainly uh, as they age.
0: Talk to your healthcare provider if you suffer from the itching and burning of dry eye. And that's today's Mayo Clinic News Network Headline. I'm Vivian Williams.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom shy
3: And I'm Tracy McRae.
1: People blog about a lot of things on the web, about their hobbies, their families, their travels, even their pets. Mm-hmm. And while we haven't done a scientific survey, uh, we're betting that of the millions of blogs out there, there are relatively few, maybe only one, about Parasites.
3: Well, every topic needs a blog, so yeah, there should be a blog about parasites. But this is not your run-of-the-mill blog about parasites. This blog is titled Creepy, Dreadful, Wonderful Parasites. A parasitologist's view of the world is written by a Mayo Clinic microbiologist and offers its readers the chance to solve a weekly medical mystery. Here to talk about blogging about parasites is the author of Creepy, Dreadful, Wonderful Parasites, Dr. Bobby
1: Pritt. Dr. Pritt is director of the Clinical Parasitology Lab at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Britt.
3: Thank you. It's great to be here. Oh my goodness, how in the world did this ever, ever come about? <laughs> well, first of all, how did yes. you get involved how did you get interested in parasites?
5: Well, I always loved infectious things, infectious organisms, and I did my fellowship at Mayo Clinic in Clinical Microbiology. And after I finished my fellowship, I was hired on, and I got to go to the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine to study parasitology for a year.
3: Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Yes. Okay.
5: It's a world-renowned school in London in England so I was very lucky to be able to go there spend the year and I knew I was going to be able to see amazing cases while I was there so the blog really started as just a way to share cases with the folks back at Mayo but then slowly word of mouth uh, people were interested in it and my readership expanded
1: so why does any physician in the United States need to know something about parasites
5: well, that's a good question. Um, we have a worldwide population this, these days. It's really a global population that travels quite a bit. We also have large immigrant populations throughout the U.S. So really, people can come and go to any part of the world very quickly and easily and come back with a life-threatening condition like malaria.
1: So you have seen cases of malaria in the United States?
5: Oh, absolutely. Yes, we diagnose probably one or two cases of malaria every week through our reference lab service at Mayo Medical Laboratories.
1: Is this something that comes that you diagnose from a blood sample?
5: Yes, you take a blood sample from someone that comes after being in an endemic area and probably has been bitten by mosquitoes, and they usually present with fevers, but they could have uh, very severe signs and symptoms. They could even present in a coma. So we just do a simple blood smear, and we look for the parasites inside the red blood cells.
1: You know, it is a condition so rare in the United States, it's interesting that a a physician out there would even suspect it and know enough to send in the
5: specimen. It's a real problem. It's all about having that clinical suspicion because you're right. If someone doesn't stop to ask, have you been to an area that's endemic for some of these parasites, you wouldn't think to test for them. And so we really rely on the physician to get a good travel history and find out if they've been to some place like sub-Saharan Africa where malaria is endemic.
1: And that is spread by mosquitoes? Yes. Correct? Yeah. And there is treatment, but you got to make the diagnosis first.
5: Well, exactly. And you need to get the treatment to them relatively quickly or they could die. Your blog
3: is so fascinating. I do have a tip for people that go there that you should make
5: the photos smaller. <laughs> do it because, before lunch. So, yeah, maybe before lunch is a good idea. Not during lunch. But and there are some videos on there. So, right, I guess a word of caution if you, uh, you know, have a bit of a queasy stomach
3: you have thousands of people that follow your blog do you have any idea first of all what the number is well how many people follow your blog
5: well I really, yeah, I'm amazed to say that I just checked and I got 16,000 page hits last month.
3: All right, so, so. 16,000 people that go and looked at the blog last mm-hmm. month. Do you have any way of knowing if more of them are medical professionals or are they just the lay public that are just like you interested in parasites?
5: It's hard to know for sure, but people can write in and leave comments on my blog. So I certainly know the people who write in and, and leave comments, and those are mostly parasitologists, microbiologists, infectious disease physicians, but I'm sure there's just people out there that are just part of the general public that are interested in parasites.
3: Now, are you going to host a cruise or something where people can cruise with you and for
5: (laughs) five days you can talk about parasites? (laughs) I don't know if that's a good idea because they might think they're going to get parasites while they're on this cruise.
1: (laughs) You don't want to go any place where there's malaria, right, or Exactly. Endemic.
5: Tropical cruise probably out of the question.
1: Are the, now you post a case every week, which is kind of a, a mm-hmm. m- mystery case, right. and ask people to try and make the uh, diagnosis. Are these cases of your own that you have seen, or wh- where do you get the material?
5: A lot of the cases come through my laboratory, and of course they're all de-identified, so you'd never be able to tell where this uh, case came from. But a lot of them get donated from my readers now. It started off with just all my own cases, but I have some very loyal and wonderful readers that write in and will just send me a case of body lice or uh, a big 50-foot tapeworm, and then I'll use those pictures and post them on my blog. I know, the saddest thing. What This is something we pulled out of a diaper, and it's just a little mm-hmm. picture. I mean, there is some of the craziest
3: things, but you do every week. People have to wait a week to find out the they answer. Do.
5: But I think a week is probably reasonable. I originally thought, should I do a case of the month? And then I thought, oh, no, people will get fed up of waiting if they had to wait a whole month. But I'm very regular in my posts, even if I'm on vacation, because I want people to know that they can keep coming back, and they will know there'll be a new case for them.
3: Have you ever stump- stumped anyone? Have you come up with something that no one has figured out
5: only once or twice did I post something that I got such bizarre answers I had to stop and question myself and say, did I post the right thing? Um, <laughs> but no, usually there's a few really astute microbiologists out there um, that will get it right off the bat. And then I'll get some random answers that might or might not make sense. And and some people will write to me directly. They prefer to remain anonymous, but other people will post. And actually some of them have great names like Microbe Man or Ladybug or Florida fan, Uh, so
3: Florida fan is all over. Florida fan is great. He.
5: really great guy, and he donates a lot of cases. That's
1: great. By the way, what is a parasite?
5: Well, that's a good question. So a parasite is generally considered a eukaryotic organism, so it has a true nucleus, and it either lives in...
1: Eukaryotic?
5: Yeah, like you e meaning true, and karyotic meaning of the nucleus. So it has a true nucleus, unlike a bacterium, which doesn't have a true nucleus. It's a prokaryotic organism. So a parasite has to be a eukaryotic organism, true nucleus, and it has to live in or on a person and that's how it survives so it could be something like a head louse that lives on your head, it doesn't have to be inside of you, but it's drinking your blood so it's getting food from you Mm -hmm. and it's also getting shelter from you
1: are they more common around the world in other countries, in undeveloped countries, because of cleanliness and sanitation?
5: Yeah, that's part of it. But there are also some parasites that are really common in the United States. Probably the big ones would be head lice. Probably most people know of some kid who's had head lice, or maybe they were the unlucky one that had head lice. Um, pinworm. Pinworm mm-hmm. is very common in children. But it is true. A lot of the parasites require what we would consider to be poor sanitation conditions where... Um, human waste gets Mm -hmm. into the soil, and then that gets into food and water and is inadvertently ingested. Thanks, Dr. Pritt, author of the blog, Creepy, Dreadful, Wonderful Parasites.
1: By the way, your website?
5: www.parasitewonders.blogspot.com.
1: Dr. Bobby Pritt, parasitologist, microbiologist, and director of parasitology at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Pritt.
5: It was great being here. Thanks.
1: We'll take a short break. When we come back, giving a mouse your cancer allows doctors to try out treatments on the mouse, before they try them on you the role of the mouse avatar
3: you're listening to mayo clinic radio on the mayo clinic news network
1: welcome back to mayo clinic radio i'm dr tom shy and i'm tracy mccray When you heard the word avatar, you might think of the film by the same name where a human takes on the body of a blue-skinned humanoid. I bet it was one of your favorite (laughs) movies. seen it a hundred times. In fact, you know, the word avatar, I looked this up. Okay. If you want to know, has its roots in the Sanskrit phrase to cross over. That is very impressive, Tom Shives. I bet when you hear the word avatar, you probably don't think about mice? <laughs> no,
3: most people don't, but yet in the real world of cancer medicine, mouse avatars are being used to customize chemotherapy for better results in humans. One of the big
1: advances in medicine so far. Well, here to talk about using mouse avatars in cancer treatment is Mayo Clinic medical oncologist, Dr. John Weroha. Welcome to the program,
4: Dr. Wuroha. Nice to see you thanks for inviting me i 'm glad to be here
3: Tell us how is a mouse how a mouse becomes an avatar
4: yeah so this is um, this is a very interesting uh project that we've been working on since now 2010. And this really um, involves a lot of people. Uh, most importantly, it involves our patients. And um, they're the the key to all of this and, and really the most important, important part of all of this. But uh, essentially what happens is patients who have uh, consented to um, Uh, allow their tumor to be used for research and then they go for surgery to have the tumor removed from their body we essentially take that tumor and inject them into mice and sort of nurture them along and and try to encourage them to grow so you give the mouse cancer
1: essentially that's what we do and you give the mouse the cancer that the patient has or had
4: correct Correct. who would not want to be part of this study you know, I'm biased, but I can't imagine why you wouldn't want to be a part of the study, because uh, um, we are doing a clinical trial in which the patient's very own tumor is put into a mouse, and uh, as you put it, we create these avatars of these tumors, and once these avatars are created, we can do many clinical trials on these avatars that you can never do on a single patient. Uh, it would be great if we could treat one patient with 10 different drugs and ask the question, which drug worked the best? You mm-hmm. can never do that in a patient. You can only treat with one drug at a time, and then if it doesn't work, you say, oh, well, let's go to the next drug. In these avatars, we could literally do an N of 1, meaning uh, an individual patient avatar getting treated with a bunch of different uh Therapies and and then going back to tell the patient this therapy did not work for your avatar. Our thought is it probably will not work for you, but let's use this other drug because it did work well for your avatar.
3: So you're creating the avatars, uh, the the tumors into the mice. How many uh, average
4: avatars does each patient have? So. Um, Initially, uh, one patient would have anywhere from three to five avatars. Okay. Um, but not all of these avatars uh, grow, and so maybe only one or two will grow. Okay. But once we get them to grow, when we're doing an experiment, uh, we'll put um, sometimes ten avatars in, into one treatment group. And so if we're if we're talking about five different treatment groups and five mice per treatment group. You're talking about 50 avatars.
3: And in the meantime, the patient is waiting to determine which chemotherapy works best for their tumor?
4: Correct, yeah. So um, the way this trial would work is that patients would have their debulking surgery for ovarian cancer. Means
3: that the tumor is removed?
4: The tumor is removed. And um, then they would go on to receive standard chemotherapy that every woman with ovarian cancer would get. In the meantime, we also um, put their avatar through the same standard chemotherapy. But what we're able to do in the laboratory is induce resistance to the chemotherapy and, and mimic what happens in our patient populations because they are going to be getting chemotherapy, and if their cancer comes back, it means it was resistant to the chemotherapy. Mm. So now we're able to mimic that in the lab and... And move those avatars to the next line of therapy. And when we get to that next line of therapy, there are a handful of therapies, and we have no good way of choosing which one. Mm. You know, there, there are four or five, and we basically just say, you know, this. These are the side effects of these sets of drugs. Here are some side effects for that drug. Uh, which one sounds um, most favorable to you? Now you mentioned o- women with
1: ovarian cancer. Is this the only cancer that you're using avatars for? Or
4: so we, we sometimes collect, uh, uterine avatars, um, more by accident than by design, uh, because it's, sometimes when patients go to the operating room, we think they have ovarian cancer, but in fact they have uterine cancer. We, we don't wait around to find out. We make the avatars and we find out later. But we aren't the only group making avatars here. So, uh, there are investigators here making avatars with brain tumors, uh, breast tumors, um, uh, pancreatic, uh, prostate and uh i may be maybe missing some other ones as well pretty
1: amazing though yeah. i mean that
4: you can actually have a
1: mouse help you determine what is the best chemotherapy for a particular patient
4: yeah. and and we can't say that the avatars can do that for us yet and that's the reason why we're doing the clinical trial is to figure out if these avatars can indeed predict the best response to chemotherapy what i can tell you that we've done so far is we have treated avatars with chemotherapy intentionally matching the patient's experience in the clinic. And what we've a, what we've done is we've asked, asked the question, how often does the avatar response to chemotherapy correlate to the patient? Mm-hmm. And so far it's corresponded every time. Um, well, you would think they both got the same tumor. Right? They both got the same tumor. It, it makes a lot of sense. But we, we aren't to the point yet where we can say that an avatar can prospectively, meaning looking forward, Predict a patient's response to treatment.
3: When do you expect this study will be completed?
4: Well, it uh, we are still in the process of opening it. We've gotten through the uh, we're working through IRB right now. We've got all of the approvals. We're working with Mayo Arizona and also Mayo Florida uh, in order to collect avatars from those two locations and and um, and bring them here to Rochester so that we can make the avatars here in Rochester. We haven't. Um, uh, opened it yet for patients? What we've been doing over the last year, though, is we've been um, we've already started the process of uh, of inducing this resistance. We've already started the process of making avatars and and testing their response to second second line therapies. We just haven't accrued the patients yet. It doesn't sound like it should take too long to figure out whether or not this is
1: a viable concept.
4: Yeah. So what we the thing that will uh, Uh, probably slow us down and it may be a good problem to have is that if our patients don't recur then we won't have anything to offer them and say hey look i've got this avatar that predicts your response so it's almost like a problem we hope to have mm-hmm. uh, that they mm-hmm. don't recur i just have to ask the logistics question here at yeah. the end at this point
3: how many cages of how many mice cages, what how do yeah. you how many mice do you have
4: right now so uh <laughs> right now uh the last time i looked we have uh over a thousand cages it might be a thousand one hundred or wow. so mm-hmm. and you haven't counted them today <laughs> no not today it, it fluctuates um and if you you know each cage can hold uh, five mice. Wow. Um, you know, some of the cages may only have uh, two or three, but, you know, for efficiency, we try to keep it around five.
1: Medical oncologist Dr. John Waroha. Dr. Waroha, thanks so much for being with us. Exciting stuff. We wish you all of the success in the world. Thanks for inviting me. That's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic.
3: Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs.
1: You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman, our social media editor Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. Thanks for being with us.